and welcome to the Vexillogicast. From the hometown of America's first World Fair, I'm Simon the Cannibal. On today's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about a few micronations and a few miscellaneous items that I've been that I've been interested in discussing, but just haven't had a real excuse to do so. So you'll have to excuse the slightly hodgepodge nature of this episode. As always, show notes are available at vexillogicast.com. That is V-E-X-I-L-L-O-G-I-C-A-S-T dot com. And discussion is on the subreddit r slash Simon the Cannibal. So I wanted to start today's episode with several micronations. And for those of you who don't know what a micronation is, it is a person or group of people that claim sovereignty or nationhood, but is not recognized by the international community. Sometimes they do have land, sometimes they do not have land. It's usually done more as a joke or as political satire than it is for actual, real, core national values. Our first example today is that of the Principality of Sealand. It's one of the older micronations in the world, Founded in 1967, it occupies an offshore defense station just off the coast of the UK. According to the current leadership, there are about 50 permanent residents, making it one of the largest micronations around. And it's had a very weird history. There was a coup attempt. And interestingly, the coup attempt, because it involved lawyers from the UK and Germany, led its founder to claim that it actually has recognition on the international stage. In 1975, the founder came up with a whole design system to represent Sealand, which included a coat of arms, a national anthem, and, of course, a flag. This is a pretty nifty flag. I think it's a very nice flag. Aesthetically pleasing flag, I should say. And it's simply a red, white, black tricolor, but it's diagonal, such that... The red portion is closest to the hoist, running from the bottom left to the top right as a white band, and the bottom toward the fly is the black portion. I think it's very interesting. I think that it has inspired a lot of different people who then have gone on to make real or imagined micronations, and it's an interesting play on the tri-band such that it is neither horizontal nor vertical, but is instead a rejection, even if it's just an implicit rejection of the standard forms of national flags. To jump to our second micronation, the Arakan Empire, and that's kind of a contraction of American Empire. It was founded in 1987 and is more of a online micronation. It doesn't actually have a physical location, a physical space, but it does claim to have quite a bit of space all around the world. A fun tidbit about the Arakan Empire, it does not have holidays because it does not hold anything holy. Instead, it has nifty days because it thinks things are nifty. The flag of the Arakan Empire is a modified Canadian flag such that the red maple leaf in the center is replaced by a yellow smiley face with black eyes and smile. It's fairly irreverent, and I enjoy how it plays with the idea of the Canadian flag and the perception of Canadians generally. As we race down the track to our third micronation, 
The third one I t- wanted to talk about was Melosia, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And this is a great example of someone just saying, screw it, I'm going to make my house my own little nation. It kind of reminds me of the Family Guy episode about Pretoria, where Peter Griffin declares his own nation. And the gentleman in question is Kevin Baugh, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And at some point in the 90s, he just said he's a sovereign nation. He has about six acres of land, and from what I understand, the size of this nation has grown or shrunk depending on his property holdings. And he represents his nation with a light blue, white, and light green horizontal triband. Very kind of reminiscent of the Cascadia flag, except missing the Douglas fir, of course. Reading about this online, he has a a bunch of funny little things where it's where his currency is, instead of being pegged to the U.S. dollar or whatever it might be, it is instead three units of currency are equal to one roll of cookie dough. And so his refrigerator is, of course, the National Bank of Melosia, having all the cookie dough reserves. Our fourth micronation is the micronation of Lovely, which was founded as part of a TV show. The TV show being How to Start Your Own Country, founded in 2005. It has a physical location, quote-unquote, but that location is the creator's apartment in the UK. As it was part of a popular TV show and as part of an online community, it claims to have 60,000 citizens, and its national motto is, have a nice day. For the Vexillogicast, of course, the most important part is the flag, which is a base of white, and then if you can imagine a Nordic cross that was kind of accidentally tilted off frame such that it is two diagonal lines intersecting, one light blue running from the bottom left to about midway up the fly, and one a light red running close to the hoist at the top to slightly less close to the hoist on the bottom such that it makes, it crosses perpendicular. But again, it looks kind of like someone was going to take a photo and accidentally bump the camera at this last second. It's an interesting and distinctive flag, and I can't think of anything that quite looks like it. Our final micronation of this episode, before we get into our miscellaneous portion, is that of Lieberland, a micronation so new, this podcast is actually older. The Vexillogicast was first recorded on April 1st, and Lieberland was founded on April 13th of 2015. Lieberland was founded by a, by a libertarian politician, possibly and probably as a publicity stunt, and it sits on kind of a swampy area that he claims neither Croatia nor Serbia have claimed. Both Croatia and Serbia reject his claim that they don't claim that, and they actually both claim that area. And Croatian police have been apparently harassing the guy and anyone who tries to enter that area. That being said, as any good micronation, he's doing his best to have the trappings of a real nation, and that, of course, includes a flag. Unfortunately, unlike the other flags that I've mentioned of micronations, this one's a little bit more complicated and not as... It doesn't play with tribands, it doesn't play with existing flags. Rather, it is a 
a tri-band of yellow, black, yellow, where the yellow bands are about twice as thick as the black band. So if you can imagine five stripes, yellow, yellow, black, yellow, yellow, horizontally across the flag. And in the center of the flag is a coat of arms with some stuff on it, but the coat of arms itself is also a tri-band of brown, white, and blue. So yes, the Principality of Sealand, the Arakan Empire, Melosia, Lovely, and Liberland are all interesting plays at having the trappings of a nation, having the symbols of a nation, in some cases issuing currency, issuing passports, that sort of thing, but not actually being recognized as a nation on the world stage. And I feel for pretty good reason. Which brings us to the miscellany part of the episode. And this is a part where I wanted to talk about flags and their use outside of representation and more as communication. First and foremost among those are the signal flags. There exists a flag for every letter of the alphabet and every number, plus repeater flags for when you need to use more letters than you have flags for. I won't go through all of them, but they all have distinct meanings, ranging from the A signal flag, indicating that a boat can't move because it has a diver underground, to the Z maritime signal flag, which indicates that a boat is in need of a tug. Specifically about the A signal flag, internationally, the A signal flag is used as there is a diver here, don't hit him with your boat, but the United States had to be different and instead uses a red flag with a white diagonal stripe from the top of the hoist to the bottom of the fly. So if you're motoring around and you see either of those flags, please go a bit slower. Also interesting are the A and B signal flags have swallow tails. So they actually are not rectangular. They have a triangular bite taken out of the fly, which led after World War II to the C, D, and E signal flags being modified such that they also had a swallowtail, and these flags represented the merchant marine of occupied Germany, occupied Okinawa, and occupied Japan, respectively. I believe I talked about the sea pennant being used for Germany in the Germany episode, but Okinawa and Japan both also had flags assigned to them. Again, D for Okinawa, E for Japan. Another use of flags for communication is that of racing flags. People don't think about it a whole lot. Flags are, after all, meant for easy visual identification and communication of something. And this works real well in racing, where it's not always practical to have a headset and to be talking instructions to every driver at all times, especially with races that go around towns and that sort of thing where you can just put a flag up to say, here's an obstacle, or here is danger, or come to a stop, or whatever it might be. And the driver will understand whether or not they can hear someone talking to them on a radio. And I was very surprised to learn that there exist over 15 or so different racing flags, depending on what conditions existed. Outside of racing, and a kind of goofy flag association, is that of golf. What do you do when you need to figure out where in the world a hole is? Well, you stick a flag in that hole. And then, of course, you hit golf balls towards that flag. Similarly, in Antarctica, and I have this on good authority from two people I've met who have spent time on Antarctica, there exist some permanent structures in Antarctica, but obviously there are no actual roads. 
So instead, roads are demarcated by rows of flags going unusual travel paths. Similarly, in Antarctica, you are not supposed to disturb the environment because everything will stay there for a long time. So they have yellow flags that indicate where you're allowed to go pee. And finally, in conversation with these folks from Antarctica, the flags are a great early warning system for what are called herbies. This is a big snowstorm coming off the mountain or something like that. What happens is all the flags that are flying will suddenly and instantly change direction. And then you know you have just a moment or two to get inside, to get into shelter, so that you're not caught up in a giant ice storm. Flags are, of course, used on the railroad, though most of that has been replaced by signal lights. But the one thing I wanted to talk about with the railroad is the use of the blue flag. And the blue flag would be placed on the actual train itself, indicating that you can't start it up, there's someone working inside it. And this goes back a long way. This is one of the first kind of safety flags out there. And this is the immediate predecessor to the lockout tagout procedure that if you have worked with big machines, you might be familiar with. If you're not familiar with that concept, lockout tagout is you're going to go work on a machine such as a train. You put your, you make it so that the machine cannot be turned on while you're inside it. You lock your lock to the power source or to the on switch or something like that so it cannot be turned on and no one else is allowed to remove that lock or tag or whatever it might be except for the person who placed the tag and multiple tags can be used so that it's never turned on if there's someone inside of the machine. So yeah, that is the use of the blue flag on railroads. I should really do an episode on prayer flags, a kind of standalone episode on prayer flags, maybe roll it into something of that region, but I did want to quickly mention that prayer flags exist. There's a whole lot to them. If you don't, if you're unfamiliar with prayer flags, they're little square pieces of cloth that usually have some sort of wood block printing on them in ink that have specific symbols and specific prayers on them, such that when the wind touches them, it carries these prayers to all the people of the earth. They generally come in blue, white, red, green, and yellow, each representing some different element of the universe. And there's a whole history and a whole lore about these prayer flags. But I found it difficult to talk about them as flags because I usually find myself talking about national flags or that sort of thing. Whereas these are never seen singly. They're always seen grouped together. They're usually a whole ton of them. And the more the better because this is, you want every ounce of wind to go by one of these prayer flags and carry your prayer you know, for the, the betterment of mankind to the rest of mankind. On the opposite side of the betterment of mankind, penalty flags. And this is a bit of hometown pride, I suppose, but the penalty flag was invented at Youngstown State in 1941. I am originally from Youngstown, Ohio. And if you're not familiar with football, and I should say gridiron football, American football, there exist small square pieces of cloth that are usually tied with some weight in the middle that a referee will throw to indicate that there is a penalty that needs to be administered on the field, such as offsides or whatever. But again, this goes back to flags' immediate communication and just a low-tech solution to, hey, I need everybody to know that there is a penalty. In some parts of the world, 
there exist swim flags. And these are flags that indicate the status of a beach. And so two flags on upright parallel poles will indicate an open beach that you're okay to swim in. And if they are instead crossed, such that they are making an X, that would indicate that the beach is closed. And from what I understand, there are different arrangements possible or different flags flown for different reasons for closing the beach. But suffice to say, it's better than posting a sign or having a loudspeaker going 24-7 or something like that. Just a very simple, low-tech, hey, don't swim here. Finally, I wanted to mention semaphore, which can be done without flags, but is traditionally seen. You see the guys waving the flags to indicate different letters or different signals to each other, usually at times when verbal communication is not all that great. And I mentioned semaphore and semaphore flags only to bring up the fantastic semaphore system that was built all over France during the French Revolution. In short, there were these towers, and on top of the towers would be giant arms, and they would be within visual range of each other. They would stretch miles and miles and miles, such that the government in Paris would know what's happening on the front lines within hours of it happening, much faster than an express rider or something like that. They were used to great effect by Napoleon and were used for quite a long time, I believe up until 1895, to send shore-to-ship communications because it was just this low-tech solution. How do you communicate with a ship or a boat before the advent of radio? So, yes, I suppose that's a whole lot to pack into. So, yes, I suppose that's very little about a whole lot. I hope you don't mind the rapid-fire, high-density, low-information nature of this episode, but I hope you learned something nonetheless. As always, you can find links to more information about these topics at vexillogicast.com. Discussion will, of course, be in the subreddit, Simon the Cannibal, and you can angrily tweet at me, at cannibal underscore Simon on Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and best wishes from the Vexillogicast.